So yeah, today we'll be reading from uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Um, so if you can, follow me with your, with your Bibles. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you all in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does that it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Well, good morning. If I've not met you yet, my name is Bijan. I'm the pastor for our church. And today we're beginning a new sermon series that will last us through the summer. We're looking at the book of Philippians. And if I had to summarize the message of Philippians in one phrase, it would be serious joy. Serious joy. On one hand, this is one of the letters in the New Testament that's filled with joy more than almost any other letter, any other book, really in the whole Bible. Even in our passage today, you saw a couple of times Paul is talking about joy and rejoicing. So happiness, gladness, joy, that's a theme in this letter. And yet at the same time, we're calling it serious joy. Because Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter. He's in prison because he's a leader in the Christian church and the Christians are being persecuted. And he knows that it's incredibly likely and it will actually happen 
that he's going to be sentenced to death while he's in prison. And so here's Paul, fully aware of what's coming. The time is short, in a really hard spot, suffering, and yet experiencing joy in the midst of it. This is serious joy. One scholar writing about the book of Philippians puts it this way, Philippians is a joyful letter, but its undercurrent is a sober realization that time is running out. Joy and the clock is ticking. And as Paul knows the end is coming fast, he in this letter tackles some of the greatest themes of the Christian life. He asks the question, who is Jesus and how can we know him? He wrestles with Christian unity. How do Christians and churches get along with each other? He tackles ambition. Is ambition a good thing and should you have it? Or the mystery of prayer or how to live with contentment. Key crucial issues for the Christian life as he's near the end of his race. And for us, I think this letter invites us to consider what does it mean to be a person who lives with serious joy? Not just joy in pleasant circumstances, but joy no matter what. Because we've wrestled with the truth of who Jesus is and what it means for our life. That's what we're going to see this summer. That's what we're going to see each week as we look at the book of Philippians. And today, we're coming to chapter 1. This is the very beginning of the letter. And in many ways, this is an introduction to all the themes of this book. So you can think of today's sermon as an overview, an introduction for things that we're going to cover in much greater detail in the weeks to come. So today, by way of introduction, I want to show you three things from the passage that we just heard read. First, I want to show you the gospel story. Second, I want to show you what can be your story. And then third, how your story can end. So the gospel story, your story if you're a Christian, and how your story will end. So first, what do we mean by the gospel story? Well, I already mentioned Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's in prison again because of persecution. And the circumstances that even led to Paul being put in prison were pretty tough. He was in Jerusalem. He was arrested for his faith. He was arrested as a leader in the Christian church. And eventually he appeals to Rome. He appeals to Caesar. So he's being transferred after an assassination attempt on his life. He's being transferred from Jerusalem to Rome on a ship. And that ship hits a storm and sinks. So Paul and his fellow traveling companions are stranded in the middle of the Mediterranean. And eventually they find an island. They go on shore and they're stranded. They meet a local group of people who are there. And Paul's gathering wood to make a fire. And a snake jumps out and bites him. It's terrible. That's to me the worst part of his story so far. Terrible stuff. But he survives this deadly snake bite. And eventually he does make it to Rome only to be put in prison awaiting trial and a likely death sentence. Those are the circumstances of Paul's life life in the months and years leading up to him writing this letter. That's pretty bad stuff. That's pretty hard stuff. And some of you don't have the same circumstances as Paul did, but you look at your life right now and you say, yeah, my life's been hard too. There's been suffering upon suffering. There's been hardship upon hardship. Look with me at verse 12. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That little word actually contains the whole gospel story. 
The whole gospel story is right there. The Greek word, Paul's writing in Greek originally, the Greek word is malon. And the word could be translated something like surprisingly or seriously. The sense that Paul is giving in the letter is something like this. I know it doesn't seem like it, but believe it or not, all the things that have been happening are actually advancing God's purpose in my life. He's saying, actually, seriously, surprisingly, even though everything looks bad, God is at work. And it's actually working for good. Now, is Paul just being an optimist? Is his actually, is his malon, is his perspective on his situation just optimistic? Is he one of those guys that's kind of annoying that's just always happy? You know, is that Paul's disposition? No. Paul's not just an optimist. In this moment, he is tapping into the story of the Bible. He is tapping into the gospel. A principle that starts in the earliest pages of the Bible and it finds its climax in the end. What people mean for evil, God uses for good. That even in the hardest and darkest moments, God's purposes stand fast. And nothing can thwart them. Paul, as he's here in prison writing, saying, actually, I know it doesn't seem like it. Everything's been hard. But actually, it's been working in advance of the gospel. It's been working in my favor. I'm convinced that as Paul's there writing in prison, he's thinking of a story way back in the book of Genesis. Another person who was stuck in a prison, a man called Joseph. And as he's remembering the story of Joseph, he remembers Joseph was a man who followed God, who lived for God. And yet his brothers were envious and they were jealous of Joseph. So they sold him into slavery and they wanted to kill him. And so Joseph's life, though he didn't deserve that, went from being loved in his father's home to being stuck in a pit as a slave. And his life from that moment on just got harder and harder. Day after week after month after year of suffering. He was forgotten. He was forsaken. He was falsely accused. He thought, this is it. My story's finished. And then one day in a malon moment, in a seriously surprising moment, his favor turns. And Joseph is taken from the prison. He's actually put in Pharaoh's court. That was the prime minister of Egypt, the sort of lead person in all of the world at that time. And Joseph now has a place of power. And one day, because there was a great famine, his brothers come to Egypt. And they're there to buy grain, to buy food. Now, it's been 20 plus years since they sold Joseph into slavery. And Joseph's standing there and he sees his 11, 10 brothers actually come to him. And he recognizes them, but they have no idea that that's him. So there's a little family drama. You should read about it in Genesis. Great story. A little family drama. But eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He says, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. And you can imagine they look like ghosts. They were terrified. Because here's this man with incredible power. And he's the guy that we did this great evil to all those years ago. And they think he's going to kill us. We're going to go to jail forever. We're finished. This is the end. And they're terrified. And Joseph looks at them. And with the full perspective of faith, he says, don't be afraid. What you meant for evil, God meant for good the saving of many lives. What is that? That's the, that's the gospel. It's the story of God that's repeated from the first page of scripture all the way to the end. 
that when the night seems darkest, when sorrow feels heaviest, God's power is most on display. And what you, anyone means for evil, God is so able to work in those moments to bring about not just the end of evil, but good that accomplishes his purposes. And so here's Paul in prison. He's remembering Joseph or he's remembering Naomi or Esther or any other great hero of the Old Testament. He's saying, this is what God does. Malon actually what seems like death is going to lead to life. And you say, is that what Paul did? He just looks at the Old Testament. He gets inspiration from those stories and that's where his faith resides? Kind of. But some of you know, all those stories in the Old Testament, they're just pointers. They were pointing at something. Because there was a day when there was a truly innocent sufferer who came, who was betrayed by those he came to save by his own brothers. The Lord Jesus hung on the cross And from anyone passing by and seeing Jesus die on that cross, they would have thought, that's horrible. That's as bad as it gets. The creator God being killed by his own creation as Jesus died. But Paul looks at the cross. Paul sees Jesus dying in place of his people for their sin. And he says, that looks bad. But Romans 8.34, Malon, actually... This is how Jesus was going to be raised to life. Not just defeating death, but conquering sin, defeating the evil one. In other words, what Paul's saying, the whole Bible is about the fact that what people mean for evil, God uses for good. That when the night seems deepest, God's mourning breaks in. When the sorrow is heaviest, joy comes in that morning. God is able to turn it for good. And so Paul says, actually, truly, what seems like it's falling apart in my life is actually advancing God's purpose. And that's the foundation for his joy. Now, stay with me. A couple weeks ago, we talked a little about this, and I just want to be clear. This sermon and this point in the sermon does not mean your life goes the way you want it to. Sometimes life gets harder than you expect. Ask Joseph, ask Paul. Paul wasn't released from prison. He died there. But what this perspective, this hard one perspective of faith does is it enables you to say not God's going to make all my dreams come true, but rather God's work can never be stopped. His purposes are being accomplished. I may not always understand what they are. I might not even want them. And yet his work is being done. And for the person in faith, the person who can see Jesus on the cross, that gives you a deep hope and confidence. Actually, Paul says, this was working in my favor. That's point one. That's the gospel story. Do you know it? Are you caught up into that story? If you are, point two of our sermon, it'll change your story. It'll change your own life story. Come back with me, if you would, to verse 12. Again, Paul planted this church in Philippi, and the Philippian church had a very deep affection for Paul. They loved him. He loved them. They were They were friends. So when they hear that Paul is in prison, naturally, as you would for your own friend, they were concerned. So they sent a messenger to Paul in Rome and they asked Paul, how are you doing? Like, what do you need? What's, how can we help you? How can we pray for you? They want to know how Paul is doing. And the letter of Philippians is Paul's answer to that question. When they say, how are you doing? He writes this letter as a response. And look at verse 12. It says in the beginning, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, 
In ancient letter writing, that's a way of saying, I'm about to give you a personal update. This is me telling you what my life is like right now. Now I want you to know. It's sort of a customary way to introduce the personal update. But isn't it amazing that in verses 12 to 18, when the Philippian readers would have thought Paul's going to tell us about his own situation, what does Paul actually do? He talks about the gospel. He talks about Jesus. So he says in verse 12, everything that's happened to me is advancing the gospel. Or verse 14, because of my suffering, now others are emboldened to share the gospel. Or verse 18, Christ is preached. And in this, I'll rejoice. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? How's your life going? Oh, it's good. Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus and what he's up to. Now, question. Is Paul being emotionally unhealthy? If, if you were to ask, how are you doing? He's like, well, let me tell you about the gospel. Is he ignoring his circumstances? Is he just spiritualizing his life? No. He's actually being more true to his real story. What he's doing here is not emotionally unhealthy. It's utterly brilliant. Because Paul realizes that to be a human being is to have to connect your life to some story. Joan Didion once wrote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. What she's saying is that to be a human being, you can't make sense of your life or the world around you, what you should believe or where you're going or who you should marry or any of the big questions without connecting your life to some story. To be a human being is to be all the time connecting our lives to some kind of story. And what Paul's saying is that as a Christian, if the gospel story is unfolding in my life, that means that my true story, the story that my life is connected to, is Jesus's. That is, to be a Christian, I'm hid or I'm in Jesus, and he's in me. I'm united to him. And so the story of Jesus and the progress of the gospel, that's my story, Paul says. One commentator writing about this, capturing this idea beautifully, Stephen Fold puts it this way. Paul and his story have become so integrated that for Paul, it's difficult to separate the two, his story with Jesus. Paul has learned to see that his circumstances are part of this larger and ongoing story, such that in talking about himself, he quite naturally ends up talking about the progress of the gospel story. This is the essence of Christian discipleship. Paul, how you doing? The gospel's going forward. I'm good. His whole self-view, his whole identity is bound up in the story of Jesus. Now, this might sound abstract, so let's try to get practical for a few minutes. Here's a question. What makes you grumpy? What are the things that just put you on edge, make you upset? If you look at your heart, if you look at the things that make you happy or make you sad, if you look hard enough, you're going to find the story that you connect your life to. You're going to see the thing that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose in life. I'll give you a couple of examples. The first, I'm telling you up front, is silly, but they get more serious. First, I'm a baseball fan, classically American. I know that. But every morning, I sometimes will get online and check the highlights of my favorite baseball team. And you know what happens invariably? If they've won the night before, I'm excited. I say, Esme Oliver, we won. They don't care, but I, we won. 
I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with a kind of, yes, the day's going to be a good one. We won. And if they lose, I'm just a little annoyed. I'm like, dang it. I don't even want to watch the highlights if we lost. But what's happening? I say, we won. Did I have anything to do with it? I mean, I had literally nothing to do with it. And yet at a profound level, what I've done is I've connected a little bit of my story to their story. And their successes become my successes and their failures become my failures. And my outlook on life, my disposition, my attitude is in some way affected by the story I've connected my life to. More serious example. If where you get your meaning and identity, if the story that you're living for is your productivity and achievement at your job or in your family or in your city, if the thing that gives you a sense of value is I am productive, I achieve, I'm doing better than other people. And by the way, we live in London. This is an ambitious city. This is a city filled with people who are really good at what they do. And does it matter that we're effective in our work? Should we care about our production and our achievements? Absolutely. But if that's your ultimate story, if that's the thing you live for more than anything, then you know what's going to happen? All your successes will go to your head and all your failures will go to your heart. When you succeed, you'll be proud and smug. And you'll look down on everybody else who isn't nearly as effective as you. And when you fail, and you will, or even worse, when somebody comes along who's better than you at the thing you do, you'll be plunged into despair. Because you're looking to your achievement and your productivity as the ultimate story to give you meaning and purpose. Here's another example. Some of you think that the highlight of your life story is going to be romantic love. Falling in love with somebody and having them fall in love with you. And romantic love is a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. But if you say, that's where I'm going to get, that's when I'm going to know my story has a happy ending. That's when I know my life matters and is worth something. You know what's going to happen? If you're single, you'll never be content in your singleness. You'll never be able to live with peace and you'll always have a kind of anxiety about who you are and do you matter and do you have worth. If your ultimate story is connected to finding so-and-so, who loves you? And even worse, if you find that person and you do fall in love, and some of you in those relationships right now, whether in dating or in engagement or in marriage, if you have that loving relationship and your ultimate identity, your deep peace and joy is connected to that person, one of two things will happen probably. Either you'll crush them with the weight of your unrealistic expectations because you'll be looking to them to save you. You'll be looking to them to give you a kind of identity and purpose that actually only Jesus is able to give. And you'll crush them. Or you'll be crushed by them. Because they're going to let you down. They're not going to live up to those standards. And even if you have a blissfully happy marriage, one of you is going to die. And then what? Every person, we could go on and on. We can go on for hours. I'm not going to. But we could go on for a long time talking about the story or stories that people all throughout our city are connecting their individual life story to. And I promise you, if you poke hard enough, every single one of those other stories can only lead to a fragile peace and a fragile joy. Because it depends on you at some level. But what Paul's tapped into here he says, if you connect your life story to the gospel, 
if you recognize that you are in Jesus, then nothing can ever threaten your joy ultimately because it doesn't depend on you, it depends on him. So that even in prison, even when your whole life is falling apart, God's work is going forward. And Paul says, I'm, I can rejoice, verse 18. He'll say in Philippians chapter four, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. You're like, Paul, how are, you, are you just being naive? And no, he's tapping into his true story. And you can too. I know this seems like, oh, it's just stuff preachers say. Friends, I dare you to plunge yourself into Jesus Christ and see if this isn't true for you. To see if he doesn't give you a kind of hope and an identity that can stand up to anything. A kind of joy that is unconquerable and unshakable. You say, I want that. How do I have it? How do I know it's true? How can I believe this forever? That's the third point of our sermon. Paul shows us something here about how the story for every Christian is going to end. Come with me if you would, just glance verse 6 and then verse 11 of our passage. Paul talks about the day of Christ. It's there in verse 6 and then again verse 11. The day of Christ in the New Testament is a technical term. It refers to a yet future day when Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, where all evil is put to right and where everything sad comes untrue. This is when the kingdom of God is established. And Paul says that day is coming. But look at what he says in verse six. Being confident of this. This is Paul's deep confidence. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. You've got to grasp this. This is in some ways the heart of everything he's saying in chapter one. The gospel story, God's always at work. My story connected to that gives me deep hope. Why? Because I'm confident that God who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it. What do we mean by good work? This is key. Good work for Paul means making you more and more into the image of Jesus to make you look more like him. We talked about this a few weeks ago in a sermon. You can find it online. But the greatest thing, the most good thing that God could ever do for you is to make you look more and more like Jesus. And Paul says, listen, if you're a Christian right now today, if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, God started a project on you. He started making you into something. He started making you to look more like Jesus. And Paul's saying that absolutely nothing is ever going to get in the way of that. And that project, that work is going to be progressing and progressing and progressing until ultimately it's completed when Jesus returns and his kingdom is established. And actually in 1 John chapter 3, the author says, we know that when Jesus appears, when we see him, we will be like him. That's a stunning thing that somehow when Jesus returns, we're going to be able to gaze on him and to see him in his glory is going to instantly and finally completely transform us. But do you realize what this passage is saying? Until that day, God's working in you to make you look a little more like Jesus tomorrow than you did today. So let me draw out just a couple of implications of this as we close our sermon. If this is true, confident that the work begun in you will be completed until the day of Christ. Three implications. First, this means that right now you're a work in progress. You are not yet what you will be. 
Some of you here this morning are a little lazy and negligent in your spiritual life. And if that's you, may I encourage you to get into your spiritual practices, take seriously your walk with God. But for most, if not many of us, the reality is that even as we try to follow God, we're often profoundly discouraged by how slowly we're growing. We look at habits in our lives. We look at things that we want to do differently, and we just can't seem to get it together. We always feel like we're falling short. We always feel like we're letting God down or other people down or even our own selves down. When you look at our life, you see a lot of reason for discouragement. This passage is meant to be a balm for a weary soul. You are a work in progress. You're not yet what you will be. And God will never give up on you. You're a work in progress. So be encouraged if you look at your life today and you see things that you wish, I wish that were different. God is working, but it's not all up to you. And he'll never give up on you if you're one of his children. Second implication, not just your work in progress, but second implication, everything that happens in your life is getting you ready for that future day of Christ. Every single thing that happens in your life right now, today, and tomorrow, and any day after is getting you ready for the day of Christ. This is the essence of Christian discipleship, to make you more and more look like Jesus. So come with me down to verse 11, because remember I said this is the other place where Paul talks about the day of Christ. Look at verse 11. Paul says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ all the way looking forward. Uh, sorry, verse 10, the end of verse 10, the day of Christ. So Paul's saying in light of the coming day of Christ, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's an interesting image in the Bible, fruit. Because fruit is something that grows organically. It grows naturally. An apple tree doesn't try to produce apples. It just does. And Paul's saying, if you're a Christian, you're in Jesus. That means you naturally will be producing fruit. What's the fruit? Well, it's looking more and more like him. But friends, don't you see? One of the images all throughout the Bible, in order to be fruitful, a tree has to be pruned. Pruning is chopping off leaves in order that the other ones might become more fruitful. Pruning is a kind of death. Pruning is painful. One author writing about pruning says this, a pruned vine is not very pretty. What previously looked vibrant and beautiful is cut down to the shrubs. Actually, when vine dressers talk about pruning, they call it wounding. Because spiritual vitality and fruitfulness needs to require a stripping away of what feels beautiful in our lives, of what seems needed. This is difficult. A pruned life for Christ often feels like death. God is absolutely committed to making you look more like Jesus. And he's going to continue that work all the way till the final day. And that work requires pruning. And if you grasp it, then you're able to say everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds. The pressures of life are the hands of the potter forming me. The fire of life is the refiner's fire that's burning away the dross and turning me into pure gold. That's the perspective that's possible for the Christian. 
so that any pressure, any challenge, any opportunity you begin to understand is being used by God to complete his work of making me look more like Jesus. Alec Matier in his really excellent commentary on the book of Philippians puts it this way. The good news, the bad news, all the difficulty, all the blessing, the unexpected happiness and the unexpected trouble, it all serves God's purpose. Concerning all such situations, faith affirms without this, I would not be ready for the day of Christ. This is the immediate and practical strengthening of this truth for the Christian life. Everything God sends, everything allows is shaping you to the image of Jesus. Paul knew that. And that led finally to a deep confidence that God will never abandon you. God will never get so discouraged with you as to say, well, I give up. I can't work with this. He'll never give up on you. And your final story, the end of your story, is going to be to see Jesus and to become like him in every way. That's what you're headed for. So in some ways, I mistitled the third point of my sermon because I called it the end of the story. But I hope you're beginning to see that actually it's only the beginning that when you get to the day of Christ and when you see Jesus, that's when your real story begins. Some of you know the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's kid's book, kid's books. And in the very end, uh, the, the main characters are talking to Aslan. Aslan is the Jesus figure. And they've been ushered into this glorious land, a land like they've never seen before. The reader knows they're in the kingdom. They're in Aslan's country. And they say, where are we? Is this it? And Aslan says, there was a real railway accident. You are what you used to say in the Shadowlands, that's earth, dead. And then he says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. The morning is here. And then he says, to close that story, for us, that is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of their real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. That's not wishful thinking. If you're a Christian here today, he who began a good work in you to make you more like Jesus will complete it until the day of Christ. The best is yet to come. And if you have that confidence and assurance, if your life story is connected into the gospel story, then you say everything he allows must be needful. Nothing he doesn't send can be needful. All the pressure is the hand of the potter. All the fire is refining me to turn me into the stunning image of Jesus Christ. And that hope will give you a peaceful joy that can face anything. Let's pray. Our God, help us today as we respond. As we think out the implications of your story in our life. Help us to be transformed today into the image of Jesus. Help us to see him more than we ever have. And in seeing him to be so changed that right now, whatever we're carrying, whatever we're facing, whatever we're weighed down by, would just start to feel lighter because we know that you're working in that to make us more like Jesus.
So do that work now by your spirit. Move in powerful ways in our hearts, in this space, even online. Accomplish your purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.